Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. So let's have a look in Luke chapter 9, and uh, we're reading from Luke 9, uh, verse 7. So it tells us here that uh, now Herod the Tetrarch heard all about, uh, sorry, heard all about, let's start again. Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed, as am I, because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learnt about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We only have five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So, Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our lives. We lay ourselves bare before you, that you would speak into us and change us through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. A quick history lesson. Just bear with me for five minutes if uh, you can uh, cope with this, okay? Back in the 18th, uh, 17th and 18th century, a movement arose that spread like an epidemic from starting in Germany through France into England. In England, became known as the Enlightenment. And there were many facets and many uh, strands to the Enlightenment and many good things, I guess, within that. But if we're to boil it down, there was one basic precept that was underlying it, which was this, that the God hypothesis is no longer necessary to explain the origin of the universe and of human life. We now know through science and reason that all all that came into into being. And this kind of spawned another movement in the 19th century called naturalism. Naturalism uh, was the idea that, uh, that all can be found in nature using reason alone. There is no super natural. Or if there is, then 
It's a distant God who kind of started everything off, but now stands back and certainly doesn't get involved in life today, doesn't intervene. There's nothing supernatural that happens. It all happens by regular clockwork, and there is no intervention from God. Now, this led to a crisis in the church. And for the church, who had historically been tethered to supernaturalism, what were we going to do? Now, some gave up on Christianity altogether, but others tried to accommodate the thinking of the day, naturalism, into church teaching and came up with what we call liberalism. Okay? Liberalism was a desperate attempt to fit modern thinking into our theology. And what the liberals were doing was saying, let's try to salvage something out of the teaching of Jesus. Let's try and get to the truth behind the stories, but without all this supernatural stuff. Because God doesn't do that. That doesn't happen. Okay? And what they were trying to do really was to edit out the supernatural in the Bible. Take, for example, the feeding of the 5,000, which we've just read this morning. What do we do with that miracle? Well, maybe, said some, the disciples had already hidden some food in a cave in advance of when they were there, and then they kind of gave it to Jesus somehow. Uh, not really. Others, and many, uh, William Barclay, one of my own commentaries, actually puts this forward, that what actually happened was this, that some people had food with them. They had their picnics with them. Uh, but they were reluctant to share it because other people hadn't brought any food with them. And then there was a little boy, and he got his food out and shared it through Jesus and the disciples. And this shamed people into their stinginess, and they decided that they should share their food as well. And so a new spirit of generosity was unleashed in the crowd. Great. So this story is really all about the power of the human spirit and how Jesus can bring the best out of us. To which I have to say, bunkum, nonsense, to be honest. I mean, it is true that Jesus does bring the best out of us, but that's certainly not the point that Luke wants to make in this passage. It is noteworthy, by the way, that there are only two miracles that are found in all four Gospels in the New Testament. The first, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other, which all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about, is this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Clearly, this is a significant moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. And all four Gospels show us that it comes at the end of the first phase of Jesus' ministry, which was when he traveled around Galilee. And Luke certainly wants to bring this out for us. This is towards the end of Jesus' preaching tour around Galilee. John's Gospel, by the way, says that this miracle is a sign that points to something deeper, and we'll come to that a little bit later. But in Luke, Jesus has spent his initial 
year, traveling around Galilee, and really Luke chapters 1 to 9, which we're about to close out on in a few weeks' time, Luke's 1 to 9 is looking at the big question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the humble see who Jesus is in verses chapters 1 to 9. Now, Herod, and we just read this in the passage, didn't we? Herod wants to see Jesus. But the reason he wants to see Jesus is really because he's got a guilty conscience. He killed John the Baptist, and now there seems to be this guy going around doing miracles, and he's wondering, is that John the Baptist come back? And his conscience is getting to him a little bit like in Macbeth. Do you remember Macbeth, everybody? And uh, do you remember the, the line, out, damned spot? Out, I say, says Lady Macbeth, as she rubs her hands, as if trying to clean off an imaginary spot of blood. She's feeling guilty because of her plot with Macbeth to murder King Duncan. And, John, uh, and, and Herod is kind of trying to, he's obviously feeling guilty and wants to see Jesus, to see who he really is. For wrong reasons, really. But you've got to give it to Herod. He's asking the right question. He wants to see Jesus. He wants to see who Jesus really is, who this person really is. And that's what chapters 1 to 9 are about. This is who Jesus really is. Can you see him? And so throughout chapters 1 to 9, Jesus is revealed to those who have eyes to see. He's revealed as Lord over nature, as we found with the calming of the storm, as Lord over supernature, as we found with the delivering of the demoniac, as the one who has authority over our fates and our futures, who is Lord over death and of life and of our lives. And now, as we get into chapter 9, it's building to a crescendo. As we see that Jesus doesn't just meet one person's need here, another person there, but that he is more than sufficient to meet all the needs of all the people. One person, one family, 5,000 people, no, 10,000 people, a vast crowd, no problem for Jesus and there's leftovers at the end as well. So what happened in this wonderful story? And I do find this uh, a wonderful account. Well, in verse 10, it tells us that um, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then he took them with him and withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. So the apostles have just come back from their first preaching tour. We heard about this last week. And they are chuffed because they've been healing people and they have been successfully preaching. But they're probably also tired, peopled out. And Jesus prescribes for them a retreat. Top of the lake, get on a boat, Bethsaida, up where, near where the River Jordan spills into the lake, a desolate place, let's go there. In fact, in Mark, uh, Mark's version of this account, in Mark chapter 6, and it's just worth me quickly referring to it, in Mark 6, it tells us this, 
uh, there in verse 30. And uh, it says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and eating that they did not even have a chance to eat. So, some, so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. You see, these poor disciples were exhausted, hungry, and needed some time out from the crowds. And so Jesus said, come, let's go on a retreat together. You see, he really does care for his disciples. But in verse 33 of Mark, it tells us that um, the crowds heard about this. They saw them leaving and they ran from all the towns and got there ahead of Jesus. And so when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. So what's happening here is this kind of a Galilean spring. Jesus has ministered in Galilee. The apostles have drummed up more interest as they've traveled around the towns and villages. The whole area wants to see Jesus and hear him. And so the crowds kind of gather around the lakeside. You can imagine as, they, as, as a group travels around from village to village, hamlet to hamlet, more and more people get caught up. It's like a rolling wave of people going around this lakeside, gathering momentum along the shores, and then they get to Bethsaida. As the boat arrives, there's this huge crowd waiting for these exhausted disciples and for Jesus. What are the disciples thinking? I imagine they're probably thinking, oh, no. But what does it tell us? In verse 34 of Mark, it says, Jesus had compassion on them. They were like lost sheep. And so here in our version here in Luke, it says that Jesus welcomed them and began to teach them and to heal them. He spoke about the kingdom of God to all who came. He welcomed them. Now, you can imagine the scene, can't you? The disciples, I mean, just fill it out a bit with me. It doesn't tell us exactly what's said, but I can just imagine this. The disciples are probably thinking, oh, well, okay, I suppose it would be rude to send this crowd home straight away. Fair enough. Okay, Jesus, give, give them an hour. Give them a bit of time. That's fair enough. So Jesus speaks for an hour, and then he heals some people, and then the disciples think, right, Time to send everyone home. Wait a minute. Jesus has started his second lecture. And uh, there's another hour and there's some more teaching. And the disciples are beginning to think, wait a minute. What's going on here? And then Jesus goes on for another hour. And the disciples are thinking, this is just getting out of hand. Jesus is clearly too heavenly minded to notice that the sun is moving across the sky. Tummies are rumbling. Kids are beginning to get cranky. What should we do, boys? Well, pipes up one of the disciples. He doesn't seem to care too much about our needs, but he cares clearly about the crowd. So let's tell him the crowds are getting hungry, Jesus. Okay? 
it's time to close this thing down, to shut up shop. Meeting's over. And I kind of imagine that for the disciples right now, power has a little bit gone to their heads. I mean, after all, they just had this successful preaching tour. They're now partners with Jesus. And they feel that they can take charge of this situation. And let's face it, we all know what happens when people sense that there is a shortage of essential supplies, don't we? Panic! And it seems as if that's what's happening with the disciples. Panic! What shall we do? And so they appeal to Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus, uh, sorry to interrupt, but, uh, you know, it's getting late. We're in a remote place. Send these people to find food and lodgings. Now, just notice, by the way, how Jesus responds to their appeal to him. He doesn't say, what's the problem? Don't you realize that their biggest need is spiritual? Man doesn't live on bread alone after all. I mean, I fasted for 40 days, don't you remember? Come on, toughen up everyone. What's the problem? Jesus doesn't say that. He actually agrees with the disciples' assessment. Yes, there is a real need. You're right. These people are hungry. You see, God does care about our real human everyday needs. Our daily bread matters to him. And however their solution lacks faith and imagination, nevertheless, it's a real need. And Jesus cares about our real needs. But Jesus has a better plan to answer their need than they have. And so Jesus takes their request and responds to it. Even though their solution isn't the right one, he hears their request and he answers it, but not in the way that they expected. Don't you find that God does that sometimes? You bring your request to God and he answers it, but not quite the way you were expecting him to answer it. But nevertheless, he's heard your cry. And that's what he does to their imperfect cry, and he does something amazing in response. In verse 13, he says to his disciples, you give them something to eat. And the, the, the language there is very emphatic. It's kind of, give them, you, something to eat. And you can imagine these disciples going, say, what? Come again? No, no, Jesus, you don't understand. I mean, five loaves, see? Two fish, comprende? 5,000 men, you know, Jesus, I mean, look, we could buy food for everyone, I suppose, if we could drum up enough money, but I'm not sure McDonald's is going to be ready for this order, and Greg's probably didn't stock up for this sort of crowd this morning. I can imagine how the disciples were feeling. Now, I find this a challenge to my faith. The disciples, you see, have seen lots of miracles so far. Right at the start of their relationship with him, he'd healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. He'd done a miraculous catch of fish for them. They'd seen miracle after miracle every time Jesus had had the answer. But now 
there's a different challenge, a new challenge. And I don't know about you, but I find in life that when there's something different that I face, I think, I wonder if God can sort this one out. I mean, I know he's always looked after me in the past, but this is different. Do you ever, do you ever find that? You sort of think, this challenge is, I've never faced this exact challenge before. I, I don't know, do you think God can help me with this? Is he even interested in this situation? And what we find is, of course, Jesus is able. He's adaptable. He can adapt to every need that we have. He's always been faithful to us in the past. Why is he going to let us down now? Even though the challenge is different, the challenge may feel bigger, but he is more than big enough for every challenge. And so in verses 14 to 15, we see what happens. They're made to sit down in groups of 50. He takes bread. He gives thanks for the bread. He probably recited what the Jews would say in the Mishnah, which was, Blessed be you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who causes bread to come from the earth. By the way, just note in passing that Jesus does say grace, if you like. He thanks God for the food. And he always does that, we find. Uh, on the road to Emmaus, at the Last Supper, he gives thanks. And I think actually it's a good thing to do, to say thanks to God when we sit down to eat our meals. But that's by the side. The point is that he gives thanks, and then the miracle happens. The food is multiplied. The pieces grow under his touch. And the disciples always found that his hands were full whenever they came back to him with their empty hands and baskets. And so at the end, there were 12 baskets left over. I love how God, when God does something, he does it lavishly, don't you? He does it extravagantly. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So we find this wonderful, lavish provision for this vast crowd. Now, just quickly, I want to share with you three things that we can learn from this, three things we can take away from this passage as we go today and as we come to take the bread and wine. The first point I want to just say to you is this, that he is able to do anything. Matthew Paris, uh, you may know him from, uh, he's been on the television, he writes in the Times newspaper, um, and he writes of his lack of sympathy with the Church of England, uh, this is a few years ago, when they installed a gay bishop. Now, Matthew Paris himself is a, a self-proclaimed uh, homosexual, but this is what he writes in the Times. Knowingly to appoint gay bishops is to rob Christianity of meaning. It is time that convinced Christians stopped trying to reconcile their spiritual beliefs with the modern age and understand that if there is one thing that comes clearly through every account we have of Jesus' teaching, it is that his followers are not urged to accommodate themselves to their age, but to the mind of God. The church stands for revealed truth and divine inspiration 
or it stands for nothing. Stripped of the supernatural, the church stands for nothing. Even as a 10-year-old boy in Miss Silk's scripture class, he reminisces, when I heard that the parting of the Red Sea could be explained by freak tides and that the story of the loaves and fishes really taught how Jesus set an example by sharing his disciples' picnic so that everyone else was shamed into sharing theirs, I thought, don't be silly, Miss Silk. If Jesus couldn't do miracles, why should we listen? You see, all four gospel writers, and this is not Matthew Paris talking now, that's the end of his quote. All four gospel writers put a clear supernatural explanation to this account. God is able to do anything. And there were thousands of people witnessed this. This was recorded in all the gospels. If someone wanted to question it, they could have done, but it was a matter of public records. And what we can see here is that Jesus works miracles. Jesus is the greater Elisha. Elisha had performed a small miracle in 2 Kings 4 where he multiplied some food for 100 people. He is the greater Moses, greater than Moses. Moses, of course, who oversaw the daily provision of manna for people in the desert, in another desolate place. But Jesus is the one who multiplies food for this vast crowd he is able to do anything. The second thing that we learn from this account is this. He's able to use us, especially when we feel inadequate and useless. Anybody? Uh, anybody feel useless at times? Most of the time. <laughs> right? But he's able to use us. I love an account that I came across of John Stott, who uh, passed away a couple of years ago, but a well-known British pastor and theologian who was invited to preach at a university of Sydney in Australia. And he often went to Australia on preaching tours and had quite an influence over there. But after he got there for one of his preaching tours, on the last night of his tour, he lost his voice before the meeting started. And this is what he says. What can you do with a missionary who has no voice? We had come to the last night of the evangelistic campaign. The students had booked the big university hall. A group of students gathered around me, and I asked them to pray, as Paul did, that this thorn in the flesh might be taken from me. But we went on to pray that if it pleased God to keep me in weakness, I would rejoice in my infirmities in order that the power of Christ might rest upon me. As it turned out, I had to get within one inch of the microphone just to croak the gospel. I was unable to use any inflection of voice to express my personality. It was just a croak in a monotone, and all the time we were crying to God that his power would be demonstrated in human weakness. Well, I can honestly say that there was a far greater response that night than any other night. I've been back to Australia 10 times now, and on every occasion, somebody has come up to me and said, do you remember that night when you lost your voice? I was converted that night. You see, don't let how you feel 
or what resources you think you have or don't have stop you from stepping out. If you wait, nothing will happen. It's only when you take a risk, take a step, step out in faith, that the miracles start to happen. He's able to use us. And thirdly and finally, and very briefly, but very, very importantly, he is able to meet all of our needs. Our physical, practical needs. If he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much more will he not graciously also give us all things? He can meet your needs. What needs do you have right now? Do you know that he's more than able to meet you where you are, to meet you in your situation, in your challenges, in the needs that you have? He is a compassionate God who sees us and welcomes us and responds to us. And of course, our greatest need by far is for forgiveness for grace, for spiritual satisfaction. I love how it says the crowd were satisfied. You know that we can be fully satisfied in every way. Most importantly, spiritually, we can be fully satisfied by his grace and his grace alone. As Jesus breaks bread and shares it here in this passage, he is prefiguring what he will do at the Last Supper where he will again take bread and break it and share it. Where he breaks his body saying, this is my body broken for you. He is enough. He is enough. For us. He can satisfy us. He can fill us. He is a gracious God, as we've been celebrating and singing this morning. So let us pray, and then we're going to respond uh, and uh, come and take bread and wine and receive from his grace this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are more than able to meet every need that we have however small, however big. Lord, we're not being selfish to come to you with our needs. You're interested in the real stuff of life that we face. And uh, Lord, I, I just want to ask you that today there would be faith in our hearts as we go from here. We'd know you've got it covered, Lord. You have every, every issue covered. We thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that we can lean on you. We thank you, O oh God, for your faithfulness to us in the past. And we thank you that every challenge, however new it is, is not new to you. So, Lord God, we, we come gratefully now. We, wait, we pray that we would be satisfied fully as we take this bread and wine, we would know, oh God, that you have met our needs through your death on the cross. You've broken your body so that we might be filled. 
we thank you, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.